Okay, we are in the New Testament book of 2 Peter this morning. 2 Peter chapter number 1. We're going to read a number of verses this morning. We'll have one verse as our text. 2 Peter chapter number 1. We're going to begin reading in verse number 16. 2 Peter chapter number 1, verse number 16. 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now what is Peter writing about here? He's writing about the transfiguration, is he not? It's recording in the, recorded in the Gospels. Now watch how Peter shifts his attention to the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. In verse number 19, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Here's our text in verse 20. Knowing this, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This morning we are continuing a series that we started a few weeks back entitled A Forensic Investigation of the Head Covering. Today's sermon will be part two. The title is An Exegetical Framework for the Study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time to be in your house this morning. We rejoice that we are saved by your grace, that we've been brought to a point in our lives where we were uh, con convinced that we must repent of our sins and we were led by the Holy Spirit to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is all a work of your grace for which you get the honor and glory. We thank you that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. And Lord, this morning as we gather together in your house, we desire to look further into the topic before us, specifically what the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 about what a woman is to wear on her head, and Lord, we desire to uh, be pleasing to you first and foremost. We're accountable to you. We want to be approved by you, and Lord, we want to uh, understand that your word is not of private interpretation, that there's one right way, and Lord, we want to know what the correct right interpretation is, and we ask that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, meet with us today that you would get all honor and glory unto your own name, for you alone deserve it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A forensic investigation of the head covering. Part 2. An exegetical framework. Now the title of the message should not intimidate you. Nor should the title of the message bore you. We recently, as I've already stated, started a, series, started a series of messages conducting a forensic investigation 
of the head covering. In other words, what evidence do we have available to us in determining what 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 verses 2 through 16 teach? Now, it is true, and I ask that you just stay with me on this, we still haven't turned to those verses, and we won't today. I'm not doing a bit uh, uh, a switch and bait on you. I'm trying to lay the framework for when we get into those verses to properly arrive at an interpretation that honors the Lord. Now, part one of our study dealt with an explanation for this study. Why are we talking about this topic? I covered that in part one. Today is part two an exegetical framework for our study. Now, our text verse in 2 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 20, we find that Peter is dealing with giving instruction to these believers. We know that if we, we didn't read this, but in context of what Peter's writing here, he's saying earlier on in the chapter that he's not going to be negligent to remind these believers about some things and to stir up their minds about some things. And here he gets into the importance of the Holy Scriptures. That the Bible that we have today, it is as though God would, would audibly speak. God audibly spoke during the transfiguration. And Peter's saying we have a more sure word, a reliable word. It is as if God literally audibly spoke. And that Scripture that Peter is writing about to those believers and by extension to us, that scripture is not to be interpreted based on individual preferences. This idea that we can come to the Bible and we can take every passage and say, well, here's what it means to me. There are a lot of passages that, frankly, it doesn't matter what it means to you or me. There's one correct way to interpret scripture the word interpretation in verse number 20 and let's just read that text verse again knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is any private interpretation the word interpretation there literally in the greek means explanation or application there's one correct way right there's always one correct interpretation of a passage. Now, I might be wrong, and you could be correct. I could be correct, and you could be wrong. We could both be wrong. But if you hold a differing interpretation than I do, we can't both be right. There's one correct interpretation. That is of utmost importance before we get into actually attempting to interpret 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Now, with all of this in mind, we should think to ourselves, how then, if it's true that there's one correct interpretation, how then do I arrive at that correct interpretation? Well, that's what we want to deal with today. We want to deal with that question. And we want to do so by considering an exegetical framework for arriving at a correct interpretation. Now, obviously, the term exegetical is built off of the term exegesis. 
We're going to talk about exegesis a little bit later on, but suffice it to say that this term, exegesis or exegetical, it is a part of what is referred to, and these won't be new terms to you today, it is a part of what we refer to as hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. You may recall, and I've, through the years, uh, tried to preach on this topic and tried to teach on it and give you some principles and some rules for how to interpret Scripture. In fact, the last time that we covered this in depth was in 2019. I did a series in the afternoon services on how to teach the Bible. And part of that dealt with how we interpret Scripture and how we study in preparing a lesson. Those messages are still on Sermon Audio, and you can go back beginning in March of 2019. I think we had about 10, 10 messages in that series. A lot of what we're going to cover today is there in more detail. Okay, We've also preached on this through the years in various other studies that we've done. We've covered it in our in our Bible Institute. We've covered it in a series of other lessons that we've done. And so we've dealt with this uh, very uh, at, at length uh, at numerous times in our ministry here. Now, what is hermeneutics? How do we define hermeneutics? It is the science and art of biblical interpretation. In other words, there are, there are specific guidelines that help us interpret the Scriptures and we should be familiar with those guidelines. In fact, I will say that it is dangerous for us to attempt to interpret Scripture without understanding at least the basics of hermeneutics. You oftentimes wonder, like, well, how does that guy get that crazy view? How does how how did they? Here's a passage, and how do they how do they get to that crazy view? And this is probably my favorite example to use and I've used it through the years you know we had a guy one time over in Ohio very young guy that said he was called to preach and he he preached that, that in Revelation chapter number one where it says that Jesus was clothed with a robe down to his feet that that means that women ought to wear dresses down to their feet you know and you say well how how, how does the guy arrive at a crazy interpretation like this it's because they don't understand or apply biblical hermeneutical principles. It is dangerous for us to attempt to interpret a, a passage if we don't at least understand the basics. Now, you don't have to be a pastor to know hermeneutics. You don't have to have a college degree to know hermeneutics. You don't have to be a biblical theologian to know hermeneutics but what you do have to do is have a desire to learn and then apply yourself so that you are not improperly interpreting scripture so to prevent error we must know basics of hermeneutics now of course it is impossible to cover hermeneutics in one sermon remember in bible institute when we covered hermeneutics that was a whole semester right, a whole term, and uh, I think we had like 15 or 16 different lessons, right, uh, so suffice it to say it's impossible for us to cover the topic of hermeneutics in one sermon, so today we're only going to be looking at some basics that apply to our interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, what, 
what hermeneutical principles will help us it properly interpret 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. I will also say this, in the first message that I preached, where we covered an explanation for the study, I did warn you that there would be a great deal of detail, minutia, and definitions in that message, and that is still true. It holds true for the message today, and I really desire your prayers for this. I don't want to overwhelm you uh, by taking and opening a fire hose and fire hosing a ton of information at you. That's not my intent. I do think it is of utmost importance that we, and anybody that might listen to these sermons on Sermon Audio, understand that you got to apply some principles if you're going to interpret the Word of God properly. You can't just open your Bible and say, well, this means this to me. There are principles we must apply, and that's what we want to cover today. Now, as we begin, and we're going to get into the actual uh, thrust of the message, there are three keys, three keys that are crucial and critical that will help us to interpret 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16, as to what the Bible teaches about the head covering. Three keys, here they are. First of all, the first key, we must possess a proper spirit for interpretation. That's critical. The second key, we must perceive precedent and precepts for proper interpretation. Thirdly, we must ponder the possibility of principles. Now, perhaps none of these keys mean anything to you this morning. Hopefully when we're done, they will. Three keys that will help us that are crucial and critical in interpreting 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And I say these are critical in any effort of interpretation. The first key, we must possess a proper spirit for interpretation. In other words, we must ask ourselves, am I honest before the Lord in approaching this subject. I will not be guilty of judging anyone. I will not be guilty of listening to something and saying, well, that person's doing this. I don't know someone's heart. I can judge their interpretation, and I can judge their evaluation of a passage, but only you really can answer whether or not you're honest before the Lord in approaching this subject. And that means that, first of all, as we think about possessing a proper spirit for interpretation, we should begin by, by asking ourselves this question. Do I possess the right mindset for the study? Do I possess the right mindset for the study? Now, we covered this somewhat in our first lesson. Here are questions that we should ask ourselves. Do I really want to know what God has to say? Or have I already made my mind up about the topic? Do I really understand what He, God, intends or means? Not what J.R. Graves or Charles Spurgeon or John Gill or J.L. Dagg or, you know, you name any other Baptist forefather. Uh, I don't really care what they say. Now, I say that with humbleness and humility. Of course, I want to study what they say. And you know that I quote 
uh, these these men and, and, and others like them multiple times. I'm going to do the same today. But my goal is not to find out what Spurgeon believed about this. My goal is to find out what God intends because it's in the Bible. So what does God have to say? Do I really want to know what God intends? And, and then this question, do I want to be approved by him? Not my fellow preacher, not my fellow church member, although I certainly would want to be approved by them. The main thrust is, do I want to be approved by God? Am I sincere in approaching this passage from an exegetical framework and standpoint? Now, we haven't defined exegesis yet. And again, I believe that you're well established in what exegesis is. Here's a, a, a formal definition of exegesis. The interpreter attempts to derive understanding from the text. In other words, if I'm approaching this study from a proper exegetical framework and standpoint, I don't read what this person said and that person said and all of this and then go to 1 Corinthians 11 and try to figure it out. What I do is I lay aside all of my biases and all of what I have been taught. And I go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, and before reading it, I ask God to give me understanding, and then I read the passage as it is written. That is exegesis. That is the interpreter attempting to derive understanding from the text. Our goal in this, in approaching it from an exegetical standpoint, is not just to arrive at a proper exegesis of the text, but it's this. It is to be able to conduct a proper exposition of the text. A proper exposition. What is exposition? Exposition is an explanation, an interpretation. It is a laying open the sense or meaning of an author or of any passage in a writing. That's what exposition is. Now, I also want to have you remember... And Peter focuses on this as well in, uh, in, in, in verse number 21 of 2 Peter chapter number 1. You do realize that when it comes to the Bible and you read the Bible, hold on to your seats, there are really two authors. There's the divine author, the Spirit of God, but there's also the human author. God used men to write the Scriptures. He used human beings. He allowed them to express themselves in their own way that they communicate. And so the writings are different. The personalities are different. We want to be able to know what God intends for us from this passage of Scripture, and we want to be able to uh, conduct an exposition of that. Hey, here's what I discovered in my study. Here's what God says. Now, the opposite of having that attitude would be to have the attitude where we are guilty of eisegesis. Exegesis, the right way. Eisegesis, the wrong way. Eisegesis is where the interpreter reads meaning into the text. In other words, I go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, and everything that I've been taught about that, that doesn't seem to line up with what I'm reading, and so I'm going to throw out what the Bible really says, and I'm going to, I'm going to substitute in what this brother said or what I've been taught 
Now, I'm not accusing anyone of doing that, you understand. What I'm saying is that I must be on guard that I don't do that, to prove my point, to be able to arrive at what I think it says, and then i got to stack up the evidence by conducting not exegesis, letting the text uh, tell me what it says, but eisegesis where I'm reading meaning into the text. If I were to do that, I would be guilty of violating God's word. Specifically, listen to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 2, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he says, But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I must really make sure that I am not still holding on to hidden things of dishonesty, that I am not walking in craftiness, that I am not handling the word of God deceitfully, that I am not engaged in eisegesis, interpreting by reading meaning into the text. I must be on guard against that. Here's something else that I should question as we're thinking about this first thought, possessing a proper spirit for interpretation, and then posing the first question, do I possess the right right mindset? I ought to ask myself, have I sought God's help for a correct understanding? Have I prayed to God? We have the opportunity. Now, we can't talk to Paul about 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 because he's dead. But you know who we can talk to? We can talk to God. God, through the Holy Spirit, is the author of the Holy Scriptures, according to 2 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 21. Have I sought God's help for a correct understanding? Psalms 119 verse 34, Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law, yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Isn't the purpose of the word to keep it, and not just to be hearers only, but doers, according to what James wrote? And so therefore, we want to seek God's help. So, First of all, uh, do, I po- do I possess a right spirit, a proper spirit for interpretation? And I have to ask myself, do I possess a right mindset? And then secondly, do I perceive God's mandate? Do I perceive God's mandate? Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, we've alluded to this verse multiple times through the years. It is foundational and fundamental to studying and interpreting the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 reads, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Now it's important that first of all, our goal is to show ourselves approved unto God. Isn't that what it says? Study to show thyself approved unto God. The word study means to make effort, to be diligent, to exert oneself. This is not a topic, Bible interpretation, it's not a topic whereby you can just read what somebody wrote, some commentator, and think that you've properly interpreted the Word of God. We are to study what? The Word of God. We're to study the the Word. We're to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. That's the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. The word workman means to be a toiler or a laborer. And we've talked about this before through the years, but the the two words rightly dividing, it's one Greek word. 
And it literally means to dissect correctly the divine message. What does God mean? God's got it in His Word for a reason. What is that reason? How do I interpret this passage? So, do I perceive God's mandate? And then thirdly, as it relates to possessing a proper spirit to conduct this study... Thirdly, do I practice a proper exegetical interpretative method? Interpretive method. Do I practice a proper exegetical or interpretive method? And that question serves as a segue into the second key. Okay, so the first key. We've got to be prepared for this. Do I have a right spirit? Do I possess a proper spirit to come to the Word of God and set aside any implicit biases that I have Regardless of what I view, how I view this topic, can I put that aside? Can I put aside what this person wrote or that person wrote? Can I say, God, I really want to know what you mean by this, and then can I come to the Bible and attempt to apply sound hermeneutical principles to arrive at a proper interpretation? If I can't do that, then I'm a hypocrite. How can I preach? that you're supposed to study the Word of God and be more noble. Brother Mark last week preached and called out that reference in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where we're supposed to be more noble than those in Thessalonica. We're supposed to be Bereans where we search the Scriptures to see whether those things are so. If I can't do that, i got bigger problems than trying to interpret 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? So do I possess a proper spirit? The second key. We must perceive precedent and precepts for proper interpretation. Now look, I'm going to get technical on you here, and this could go south quickly. So stay with me. If you at any point say, can we stop and do some jumping jacks so I can re-engage, I will lead the team in jumping jacks, okay? But this is important stuff, and we must apply ourselves. We must perceive precedent and precepts for proper interpretation. Folks, now we are getting into the nuts and bolts of exegesis. This literally serves as the basis for our exegetical framework. Now, first of all, we want to think about rules that Baptists have historically practiced in interpreting Scripture. Rules. Rules that Baptists have historically practiced in interpreting Scripture. Baptists have historically regarded certain unique to the Bible rules which are expressly defined by the Holy Scriptures. And in so doing, Baptists have applied common principles of exegesis to a passage. Now again, we've studied multiple rules in years gone by. And there are more rules than we're going to cover today. But for time's sake, I want to think about rules that will help us in our interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And I am going to tell you there are 10 rules. Okay? 10 rules. The first rule, interpret Scripture with Scripture. Not with Jewish history or tradition. It's okay to consult Jewish history and tradition. But I don't say, I believe this because the Mishnah tells me that. No, sir. 
We interpret scripture with scripture. We compare scripture with scripture. It will help us avoid problems. The Philadelphia Confession of Faith of 1742, I referenced that in our first message on this topic. It is a well-known Baptist Confession of Faith based on the London Confession of 1689. In section 1, article 9, the Philadelphia Confession of Faith reads thus, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, uh, but one, it, they're saying there's one interpretation, right? There's not many interpretations, there's one. And when there's a question about this, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. In other words, I can study what history says, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. And I can study culture, and I can study this, and I can study that. But the ultimate arbiter is the Scripture itself. We must interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's rule number one. Rule number two, interpret unclear passages with clear passages. So you get to uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And the Bible says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And the Campbellites have built a whole doctrine out of that. Well, how do we know that baptismal regeneration is not correct? Because we go to other clear passages that will help us understand that and determine that. And so rule number two, interpret unclear passages with clear passages. Number three, don't ambiguously interpret plain scripture. Man, listen, when something is plain and clear, don't muddy the water. David Cooper famously wrote back in the 1940s, and you'll recognize this quote, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. In other words, when the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, we don't need to go in and try to muddy the waters. Thou shalt not steal. That's what it means, right? So don't ambiguously interpret plain scripture. And then rule number four, don't pervert scriptures to make it more spiritual. Oh man, listen, here's a very plain passage, but we have to look into it and find some mystical meaning that will help us apply a more spiritual lesson. Do you know that the Bible is, is written for the common man, for the common person? And there are passages that deal with every aspect of life, don't try to make something spiritual uh, apply to some spiritual meaning when it doesn't, when that's not what the Bible is saying. I've used this illustration before. Uh, a healthy dose of uh, First or Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 10. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember which book it's in, but, you know, if any won't work, uh, uh, neither shall he eat. Well, there, there's no mystical spiritual meaning to that. It means that if you won't work, you don't deserve to eat. That's a very plain, simple meaning of the passage. So don't pervert Scripture to make it more spiritual. Number five, don't forget the literal interpretation and the historical event. Let me say that again. Don't forget the literal interpretation and the historical event. Now, the Bible is natural in character. It is not some mystical, magical book that has to be interpreted allegorically. It is a book written for the common man. And it gives us rules and practices and principles for living. And so don't forget the literal interpretation and the historical event. Now, 
when we're thinking about interpreting with this rule in mind, first of all, we ought to apply some common sense guidelines. People sometimes check their common sense at the door when it comes to interpreting Scripture. We ought to apply some common sense guidelines. We ought to, first of all, identify the type of language that is being used. Is it poetic? Is it literal? Is it figurative? And remember, we have to try and determine how people living in Bible days would understand a passage of Scripture. Now, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, didn't he? He didn't write chapter 11. He wrote it as a letter. The chapters were later added in the 1200s. But anything that he wrote to the church at Corinth would what? have to be understood by the members of the church at Corinth. We cannot lose that fact, right? So we have to understand that. Paul did not write the letter 1 Corinthians to us. He wrote it to the members of the church. If I were to write you a letter and people would read that letter 200 years from now, they probably wouldn't be able to understand in it everything in it because I would assume that you know certain things because we live contemporarily together. We have to remember and try to determine how people living in Bible days would understand a passage of Scripture. That means that, first of all, we got to consider the time. The time. And when we think about the time, that means the customs of the day. Why don't we practice foot washing? Because we have shoes and cars, okay? We, we don't have to walk everywhere, and when we get to a residence, have our feet washed, right? So we're talking about time and customs of the day. Forgotten traditions. Why don't we greet one another with a holy kiss? That's not a tradition that we practice today. Thirdly, civil conditions. And fourthly, moral conditions. These are all things that we have to consider when we're interpreting a passage. The time, and then secondly, the science. The architecture that was prevalent. The geography. Where exactly is Corinth? What was, the, what was uh, notorious about the city of Corinth? What was the vocation of people that lived in Corinth? These are all things that we must take into consideration. And so we apply some common sense logic, and we also identify figurative language. I talked about this just a moment ago. Some language is not meant to be taken literally. It is not. We, we understand that. Just from our own language, if I were to say to you, you know, Jim says, uh, hey, I got an important uh, presentation I'm giving to the, to the generals in the SES tomorrow, and I say, hey, break a leg. And here, let me help you. Crack! <laughs> no, it, it's not literal. It's figurative. Do you think that they didn't use figurative language in the Bible? Come on. We have to, we have to understand these things. If a statement would be irrational, unreasonable or absurd if it is taken literally then you can presume that it's figurative okay there's figurative language and so we have to certainly make sure that we're not forgetting the literal interpretation of the historical event but then sixth sixthly we must understand that the meaning of the words are important we have to understand the meaning of the words because they are spirit-chosen, 
We believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture, that it is, that it is dynamic inspiration, that, excuse me, not dynamic inspiration, but we don't believe in dynamic inspiration. We believe in verbal inspiration, that it is word for word. That means that we have to focus on grammar. I mean, we have to look at, at, at how that the words are used and how we define these words. Synonyms are used. We should understand etymology, which means the historical roots of the words. We should properly define them. And you know whenever I do this, I've done this this morning. Looking at 2 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 20, I defined for you what the meaning of the word interpretation is. Now, you can go search that out on your own. You don't have to take my word for it. But we want to make sure that we're defining the words. We want to know what part of speech it is. We talked about this Wednesday night in looking at 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 and taking the Lord's Supper. Is this, is this something that is uh, uh, an adjective or an adverb? Is it unworthy or unworthily, right? Is it a noun? Is it a verb? And so what is the part of speech? And what, how is this word used differently in Scripture? Because you'll have one word that contains various definitions, and some of them are, are not even remotely close. And so how is this word being used in this particular passage? And then, of course, figures of speech, metaphors or similes. The church is the body of Christ. It's not literally the body of Christ. It's a metaphor that Paul used to describe the church. Here's, here are a few illustrations. His eyes were bigger than his stomach. Nobody's eyes are bigger than their stomach. Okay, It's a figurative uh, way of speaking. I'm broke. <laughs> that can mean a number of different things, can it not? She made the cake from scratch you got to understand how these words are being used. And again, there are grammatical aids like lexicons, concordances, and dictionaries that will help us out in this. And so we're talking about understanding the meaning of words that their spirit chosen. We talk about grammar, and then we talk about sentence structure. We have to think about sentence structure, words and punctuation. When you remove punctuation from something, it can change the entire meaning. We have to know what the emphasis is on, right? And we have to know exactly uh, what kind of thoughts are grammatically being expressed. And you know this, you can take a sentence and you can place an emphasis on one particular word and change the entire meaning of the sentence, okay? And so we have to consider sentence structure. And then the seventh rule, the seventh rule, understand the context. This is so important. Understand the context of the writing. That means understanding what goes before and what follows after. We have often said that context is king. Understanding of context is vital to understanding Scripture. We have to pay special attention to the order that is given in Scripture. Original thought is organized and coherent for a reason. And I've said this before. If I wrote you a letter, and it's a five-page letter, how many of you would take that letter and say, let me go to the middle of page three and start reading? You wouldn't do that. You, you start at the beginning. And you read what goes before, and you read what follows. Now remember, and this is so important in this particular area, do not allow chapter and verse divisions to throw you off. 
Chapters were added in the, around 1244. Verses were added in the 1500s. So when Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, he did not divide it up into chapters and verses. Make sure that you're not allowing the chapter and verses to throw you off. Francis Whalen, the old Baptist, wrote, Every sentence in a connected discourse is closely associated with, with, with what goes before and what follows after it. Its abstract meaning is modified by that of its immediate adjuncts and by the general scope of thought of which it is an, integ an, an integral part. So what is this whole cohesive ordered writing trying to say? Now, we have to consider two areas when it comes to context. First of all, what is the intent of the book? The book. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 is in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we have to consider what is the purpose, the theme, the main thrust of the book. Now you know this. Anytime we do a book study here, what is the first thing we do? A lesson where we survey the book. What's the meaning of the book? What's an outline of the book? What are the key thoughts? Who wrote the book? When was it written? These are important in understanding. And so we ought to, we ought to make use of, Kipler's, of Rudyard Kipling's five friends. To whom was the book written? Who's it spoken to? When was it spoken? Why was it spoken? Where was it spoken? And how is it spoken? These are all important in determining an interpretation as we take, uh, uh, we take heed of the context of what is written. So what is the intent of the book? And then what is the immediate context? And the immediate context, perhaps, is the most important of any of this. What is before? What is after? And we have to weigh how the author's words fit into this context. And I would submit to you that in our final analysis of a passage, context is really what helps us determine the meaning, is it not? Let me give you an illustration. This is from Henry Verkler's textbook that we used in the Bible Institute on Hermeneutics. And you'll remember this if you can remember 20 years ago, okay? Uh, Katie had a ball. Katie had a, this is an illustration. Katie had a ball. That could mean she had a round spherical object that she was playing with. She hosted a formal dance. Or she had a great fun time by participating in some activity. Those are all things that could be meant by Katie had a ball. But if we follow the phrase Katie had a ball with when she threw it to Sue, does that help you interpret what is meant by Katie had a ball? It's a round spherical object that she threw to Sue. So context is important. Rule number eight, the Bible is a unit. The parts must agree. You can't have the Bible teach one thing here and another thing there, and they contradict each other. Rule number nine, the doubtful is to conform to the clear. In other words, if you're having problems interpreting a passage, what is clear? Well, whatever's taught must be conforming to the clear. And then lastly, rule number 10, the Bible is meant to be obeyed. It is God's word to us. It is inspired. It is preserved. Brother Mark preached a message on the scriptures last week. I won't re-preach that message. So we start out 
with these with this second key perceiving precedent and precepts for proper interpretation we begin we begin by looking at rules that baptists have historically practiced in interpreting scripture and then secondly reasons for practicing these interpretive rules what are the reasons well the reasons are very clear we may not be able to come to a spontaneous interpretation of a verse have you ever read something and said what does that mean now it's very clear when you read the ten commandments they mean what they mean right you can read the ten commandments and say oh well god's saying don't do this don't do that don't do this right but there are other passages that you read and you say what does this mean You can't come to a spontaneous interpretation of that passage. Therefore, the rules are important because there there are obstacles that keep us from coming to a spontaneous interpretation. There are four obstacles. Four obstacles. First of all, a historical gap. You can't possibly understand why Jonah was so opposed to going to preach to the Ninevites unless you understand Uh, the Israelites' relationship to the Babylonians and the Ninevites. There's a cultural gap, right? You must understand how cities were built to know what it meant when the Lord said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He wasn't talking about a sewing needle, right? So there's a cultural gap. There's a philosophical gap. Views of life were different in the Middle Uh, Eastern cultures, their views of women were different. Their views of divorce was different. And then there's a linguistic gap. Words mean different things, as we've already talked about. So for these these four obstacles, they give us reasons for practicing interpretive rules. Now, we're going to bring this to a close quickly here, and I'm I'm cognizant of the time, but we want to move on to our third and final key. So far, we've considered these keys that are critical or crucial in helping us interpret 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First of all, we must possess a proper spirit for interpretation. Secondly, we must perceive precedent and precepts for proper interpretation. We've got to apply the rules. We've got to know how to interpret Scripture. And then thirdly, we must ponder the possibility of principles. Now, hold on. Let me explain what I mean. God's word is full of commands, is it not? There are commands of commission and commands of omission, things that we're supposed to do and things that we're not supposed to do. In fact, the Jews say that in the Old Testament, there are 613 commands. And the vast majority of them are, 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 are weighty commands where there are things that are prohibited for God's people, right? So it's, it's full of commands. But not every scripture and not everything is a command. There are some areas and issues that are not clear from the word of God. There are issues that we deal with today that God doesn't specifically outline in the Bible, right? And so we must talk about principles. Now, when we ponder the possibility of principles... And we're looking at a passage. The first thing that we ask is this. Does this passage reveal a clear command from God? Does this passage reveal a clear command? If it is a command, it must be obeyed. Thou shalt not steal. 
Do we need to debate that? Thou shalt not steal. You say, well, what if somebody's hungry? Well, the book of Proverbs talks about the thief that steals bread and how that that thief is to restore that and more for stealing someone else's bread. Thou shalt not steal. It is a clear command of Scripture. Brother J.L. Dagg, the old Baptist, wrote, The Bible contains the precepts of God and is therefore a rule of duty. We are bound to obey the commands of parents and civil leaders, but God has a higher claim on our obedience. He is our Father in heaven and the supreme lawgiver of the universe. Against this high authority we rebel when we refuse to obey the precepts of the Bible. We're talking about clear commands. Not adding to the Bible something that we think should be a command because of a way that we interpret a scripture. No, God's commands are clear, right? So, first of all, does this passage reveal a clear command from God? And then secondly, or... Or does this passage serve to teach a principle from God? Does this passage serve to teach a principle from God? Even though the Bible is full of clear commands, not every possible situation is or could be covered. Imagine how thick the Bible would be. Do you think Moses ever thought of motor vehicles, let alone rockets traveling to space? Do you think that the Jews, when they were in the wilderness, ever thought that you could go into a liquor store and buy any spirit that would cause you to be inebriated that you could think of. No. So there aren't specific passages that say, thou shalt not buy liquor from a liquor store. So what do we have? We have principles that help us know this. We've talked about this before. The Bible doesn't name the place where you're supposed to work. But it gives you principles by which you can determine that this is okay, this is not okay. The Bible does not name the person that you're supposed to marry, but it gives you clear principles on how to choose a mate. Principles. We must be concerned about principles. What's a principle? It is a concise statement of a general truth by which we can make specific applications to daily life. Let me give it to you again. A concise statement of a general truth by which we can make specific applications to daily life. Now, principles transcend ages and culture, okay? And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say this. For those people that say that we can't consider culture in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, do you ladies dress the way that they dressed in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11? You don't. You don't dress the same way. Neither do men. We don't wear tunics and overcoats and things like that. We don't wear girdles. You know, we're, we believe in the priest of the believer. I don't wear a bonnet. I always got a tickle out of that, you know, that the priests wore bonnets, okay? Uh, culture has to have a play in it, doesn't it? So I don't think we should go to culture to see specifically how we should dress, but we should derive some principles as to how we should dress, right? And so, so principles transcend age and cultures, and some principles carry as much weight as a clear command. They do. These principles do. Now, there are four types of principles, and I'm going to give you these and we'll be done. Four types. First of all, there's a clearly stated principle. A clearly stated principle. Here's an example. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. That's a clear principle, a clearly stated principle, and it has implications for our jobs, for our family, for our social life. 
right? It's a clearly stated principle, love your neighbor. Then there's a, a principle that is derived from a clear declaration. This is derived with logical deduction from a teaching or a combination of teachings. Now, let me illustrate what I mean by that. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the Bible says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Is there anybody here this morning that would raise your hand and say, It's okay to commit adultery? Of course not. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's pretty clear. But then Jesus, in the New Testament, gives us a different look at this. He says in Matthew 5, verse 28, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So what can we deduce from that? Better not be looking at pornography. Better not be sitting at the beach and seeing these women and the way these women dress with their whole rear ends hanging out. Forgive me. You better not be sitting at the beach and saying, oh, I'm just enjoying a day at the beach, and you're looking at these women and lusting after them. Because you know what you're doing? You're committing adultery. We don't know that from the Old Testament, but we know it from this principle that is derived from clear declaration. You see where I'm going with this? This is important. This helps us interpret Scripture. The third type of principle is a principle that is derived from historical passages. These are historical events that are addressed to or about people in other times. Historical passages have three levels of authority. There is a historical passage that would have full authority. When you have a historical passage that has full authority, you have God... First of all, evaluating what's being spoken of and giving us a reason. Okay, He's saying, I either approve of this or I don't approve of this, and here's why. That has full authority. If God tells us not to do something, if he told the Israelites not to do something and here's why, we ought to take heed to that. That's full authority. Then there's limited authority where God gives us an evaluation, but he doesn't give us a reason. Hey, this is wrong, but why, why is it wrong? We don't really understand. That's limited authority. And then there is illustration level only, where there is no evaluation given. We just get, we're just given a historical event and a description of that event. And we have to understand that. How many of you today would say, uh, okay, uh, if you eat shellfish, you are sinning against God? How many of you would say, well, if you eat, I'll say it the way I like to say it, hog, <laughs> okay, if you eat pork, you're sinning against God because God said that the, the, the pig, the hog, was an unclean animal and you're not supposed to eat it. Now, you might say, as I would, there are health considerations, but I can't say to you if you're eating a slab of, of ham that you're sinning against God. You understand why it's important to know how to use these principles. And how to interpret scripture. And then there's a fourth type of principle. It's a principle that is derived from passages that don't directly apply to contemporary life. And there are a ton of them. And I just mentioned one of them, right? Many commands or teachings, especially in the Old Testament, are qualified in context as to whom and under what circumstances they apply. And they're modified by later revelation. Okay? So, uh, you know, when's the last time you heard of a church 
suspecting a woman of uh, committing adultery, and so they bring her in and they they take her head covering off because remember, in those days, the Bible uh, the Bible teaches the women wore veils, not not in the tabernacle. They wore that that was how they dressed. They wore veils. Okay, it, you know, and how it, go back and look at how that was to be done is to fill in the stomach up and seeing if the stomach was going to bubble up and so forth. Who, who does that today? Why don't we do that? That's a historical passage that applied in that day, and it doesn't apply to us. Remember, there is the moral law of God, but there's also the civil and ceremonial laws that are revealed in the Old Testament that don't apply today. Those are those are laws that were given to the Jews as to how to conduct themselves as a nation, right? So we have to understand these things. These are all critical and crucial in interpreting the Bible. Now, I'm going to stop there. I've already gone over my time this morning, and I apologize that for that, but I thought this was very important to lay this groundwork because next week, Lord willing, guess what? We're getting into 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And we want to know how we're supposed to study this and how we're supposed to interpret it. We looked at three keys today. Possessing a proper spirit for interpretation, perceiving precedent and precepts for proper interpretation, and we must ponder the possibility of principles as we interpret the Word of God. And you know what? I'm convinced that if we, give, if we ask God for wisdom, according to the book of James, we ask Him to guide us, we will we will rightly approach the study. We might not be able to say, hey, here's what this verse emphatically teaches, but we'll at least conduct ourselves properly in the sight of God in attempting to find out what the passage teaches. We talked today about the second part of our study of a forensic investigation that had covering an exegetical framework. May the Lord Jesus Christ And our Heavenly Father, receive all the honor and glory, for we belong to Him. Let's pray.